This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. morning I'm going to be finished off the series by looking at reckless serving. I was, I was wondering actually what does reckless serving actually mean? So I started off dictionary definition. What does the word reckless mean? Reckless says in the dictionary being utterly unconcerned about the consequences of some action. And the word servant it says a person who performs duties for others. So I put these two together and so according to a possible dictionary definition if there was one it would be a person who is utterly unconcerned about the consequences of performing duties for others. The question is, is that what we believe reckless serving is? And hopefully, this morning we're going to kind of explore that a little and work out actually, is that really what we think, or do we think it's something slightly different? So, we're going to be looking at what, this, what does this look like, and in terms of what does, this, what does reckless serving look like, we're not just looking in the context of church, we're not just looking in the context of employment, but we want it to look in, in the context of all areas of our lives, how do we recklessly serve our families, our, our children, our friends, our community, and so forth, so forth. We want actually to have an attitude of reckless serving that, that uh, goes out into every area of our life. So to do this, we're going to be having a bit of a closer look at two, two ladies. Unfortunately, they're not here with us today, but they are in the Bible. So we're going to be, look, we're going to look at, be looking at Mary and Martha, two sisters, but we're going to be looking at two stories so two parts of the Bible, it talks about Mary and Martha. Very similar stories, but one of them focuses a bit more on Martha, one of them focuses a bit more on Mary. But what you'll see is actually in both these stories, Mary and Martha are, are doing the same thing, but we just get a bit more detail. So, first of all, what reckless serving isn't, but culture says it is. That's where we're going to start off, because this is probably what we get told more often than not, and I'm here to say, actually, this is not what reckless serving is. So to do that, we're going to start off by looking at Martha, and we're going to go to Luke 10, 38 to 42, but that's all up this, that's great. So it says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So this is Martha's story we're looking at. And... Those of, you have, those of you who have been around in church for a while and you know the story of Mary and Martha, you would have heard this before. Actually, you know Martha generally gets quite a bad rep. She is not a, someone that preachers ever say, be more like Martha. 
And in one sense, it's a bit unfair because you actually read some of the other stories in the Bible which talk about Martha. Actually, she's someone who loves Jesus. She's passionate about him. And there's times when actually she comes off better than Mary. But in this context, she doesn't. And this morning, she probably won't. But there are positives. Martha is hardworking. She wants to do a good job. She's got high standards. And she's, so she's not, she's not just a, a slacker. She's not a sluggard. Proverbs says a lot about the sluggard. And she's not one of those. She wants to do good. The problem is... Even in these verses that we've just read, there's three words that describe Martha, and none of them are positive. It says she's distracted, it says she's worried, and it says she's upset. If we were to add more words onto that in terms of describe what's Martha going through in this time, we'd say she's probably busy, she's tired, she's stressed, she's probably lonely, she's begrudging, she's demanding, she's bossy, she's probably proud. And with a name like Martha, actually in this situation, she's acting like the martyr. She's like playing a violin saying, poor me. Um, And I want to say clearly, actually, there's much about how Martha is acting that culture says, this is what we need to be like. This This is good. And Jesus is saying, actually, this is not the culture I've called for my people in terms of how we serve. And he just gently rebukes Martha. See, in this situation... Martha, she's actively serving Jesus, but she's missing Jesus. She's, biz- she's caught up so in, in the busyness of doing the life rather than just being with Jesus and enjoying life with him. Her duties have dis- disconnected her from her love for Jesus, and she did love Jesus. You need to hear that. Just because we read this and we think it's negative, she loved Jesus, but it was coming out in the wrong way. And it's something that actually... Um, we need to be really, really careful of. Because the problem, the busyness is kind of the outworking of what's going on inside of Martha. Because what's really happened with Martha is her life has just come off centre. So whereas Jesus should be the centre, actually she's just veered away from that. And now, actually all these other things are going on which are distracting her from that centre, that central point. So the thing is, if she was to be in this situation... And she'd think, all right, you know what? Jesus has rebuked me. Next time, I'm going to make sure I'm sitting at Jesus' feet. My guess is that she'd be sitting at Jesus' feet, but her mind would still be thinking, oh, I haven't done the hoovering. Oh, Jesus is standing tonight. I haven't done his bed. What happens if he finishes talking, he finishes his preaching, and he wants to go to bed, and I haven't done that? She'll, she'll be thinking, her mind's going off on all the other things, rather than just enjoying that moment with Jesus, thinking, wow, I'm sitting at his feet. Her brain and um, her mind in that moment, it will be kind of scattered, it will be irritable, and probably just quite anxious. There will be the worries of the world constantly going around in her head. I need to think of that, think of that, think of that. And if you want a sure and certain sign that her life has gone off centre and is slightly out of, out of order in terms of the way she should be thinking, she's got the cheek to tell Jesus what to do. She says, you tell my sister. What? She's, she's demanding something from Jesus to say, come on, you do this. Because she's got, she's got so much, in this moment, so much pride that's built up. That's actually felt her to feel, actually, I'm in the right here, and Jesus, you're not, you're not backing me up here. So, culture celebrates the Martha's. We see it in so many different areas of our life. We see it in, say, for example, in... Uh, parents, parents is this pressure to get your kids to everything, to do everything and the more you get your kids to, the better parent you are if you're, you see in our social life if you're out every 
every night, every Friday night, every Saturday night. If you're doing, if you've got a busy social life and actually you're, you're doing great in life, you're, you're probably, you're probably a, one of the culture puts their thumbs up and says, you know what, yeah, you, you're doing so well in that social life. We, we can see in our church life, but probably in the most obvious area, in the, where there's the most obvious examples, it will probably be in our work life, in the culture in our work. You see, culture applauds those that work over the hours. It's, like a ba- it's kind of worn as a badge of honour. I mean, I know my, my boss, he, um, he does get my respect for many reasons, but um, one of the reasons why I think lots of people give him respect is because he works flipping hard. He, he gets to work at like sometimes 7.30 in the morning, although he doesn't have to be there till 9, and he's often out long after 6, and when he doesn't have to be there that long. But he, he works hard because he wants to do a good job. And it becomes a bit of a, a badge of honour and almost a reason to give someone respect because actually they're working really hard. In, the, in uh, UK law, um, it states that actually we're to work no more than 48 hours a week. On I think that's over an average of so many weeks. Um, but actually what you find is in some, employ, in some um, employment, there'll be a pressure to opt out of that. You can legally opt out of that. And if the employee does that, then actually they can work more hours. And so this is pressure of working more hours than was expected. So average working weeks around the world. So as a world... Um, Average is between 40 and 44 hours a week. European average is around 40 hours a week. What do you think? UK, higher or lower? 43 generally is the average hours hours a week that people work. And if if you were to have a guess, which major European country averages around 30 hours a week? France France and Germany both are really low. I I can't explain the French. Germany, we could probably put it down to the efficiency that they don't have to work so hard because everything's really efficient. I can say that on part German, so that's all right. Um, but yeah, so I think actually in different cultures, we experience different things. But right here, right now, we are in the UK. And so I'm saying to you, there's a culture in the UK to work harder, to put more hours in uh, to your workplace. And that's actually what the culture celebrates and will say well done to you for. And so we, fa- we find we face challenges in our society. There's... Um, it's kind of, some things are said, some things are unsaid. So there's higher standards of living. We find a pressure to need to have to work more so we actually we can bring in more finances. Um, and so that actually enables us to buy all the latest gadgets, to have the latest clothes, have the latest car, to have the nicest house, so forth, so forth. And in the same sense, actually, with your family, actually, there's a pressure to do family better and better. There's not this kind of like, uh, reliance on others, it's like, actually, let's rely upon myself to provide so actually I can do my family the, the best way possible and culture will say, actually, hey, you're, you're doing well as a, as a parent, well as a, uh, well as a family. So there's this culture of kind of keeping up with the Joneses. It's, I don't know if that's a, just a UK phrase or whether that's a, a Western phrase, I don't know. Uh, can I, yeah. It's a Western phrase, okay? So, okay, I've got the, I've got the yes from the Canadians, so... <laughs> So yeah, so in this Western culture, because I think quite often UK culture and Western culture, it's, it's, it's very similar. There's some differences. And so there's always this pressure to, to do more, to earn more, to live at a higher standard. And our responses to these challenges are often, can often be quite negative. Uh, can, we can often respond in the wrong way. So we can find that actually what we end up doing is we make less and less time for the things that re-energize us. 
Um, whether that might be actually just spending time with your family, um, going, on, going on dates with your spouse, whether it's um, just going to the sport or the activities that you love doing, and you just find actually those things can be squeezed, and those are the things that actually energise us, and we give our energies going out into all the things that are just sucking our energy out, and we just find ourselves drained and busy and tired. One, one way to kind of like test this is actually when people ask you the question, how are you? How many of us is our first response either busy or tired? I find I do it all the time, and I'm like, I need to get out of that. One, I need to get out of that habit, because that's, a, that's just a thing that we say. But two, I think I don't want to live a life that's always busy and tired. I think, yes, there's seasons of life with young kids, actually, that can be busy and tiring all the time. But I think we need to be aware of, actually, when are we just telling ourselves we're busy and tired all the time, when actually we don't have to be. Um, I think there's a, there's a culture of, um, I think got up there of a there's an, we're more easily excused to have a breakdown than we are to actually have time off from whether that be from work or whatever to prevent a breakdown and so, so it's almost like okay they've reached a breakdown that's because they're working really really hard but actually if you say actually I need some time off so I don't reach that actually that's generally not accepted as a good thing it's shown as weakness and it's, and it's, it's really a real shame we might find actually our material gain becomes our ultimate goal. When we become busy, we think, okay, I need, I need to get more and more, and so we're, we're constantly striving for more material gain. And eventually, we might just end up with a life that is we live to work rather than work to live. So Eugene Peterson, he says this. He says, busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It is filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's action. It is taking charge. And then Pete Scarazzo, uh, he says this, he says, I know I'm not serving out of enjoyment and close relationship with Jesus when I'm, and he's got a whole list here of things, and I wonder how many of, the, of you lot, like, relate to this, like, in, even in the past week. He says, so I know I am serving, not serving out of enjoyment and close relationship with Jesus when I'm imposing my will on situations and circumstances, grasping for things to happen, have little grace or love for others, stop listening when I'm anxious and my body tenses up, when I'm self-absorbed, judgmental and fearful, when I'm rushing or when I have too much to do in too little time. This is me. I read this list and I think, I'm always rushing around trying to put too much. I mean, the, the whole joke of it is, here I am preaching this preach and I think, this has been my week. I'm like, I'm trying to squeeze in time to do a preach, and I think, but I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I'm thinking, my, my week's just, just crazy. And I'm thinking, God, how could I stand before the church and, and say this when I'm thinking, this is me. And guys, I'm saying, because I think most of us are like this. I'm saying, I'm with you on this. I'm saying, I, this is a fight for me. This is a fight for all of us against this, this culture of the world to say, actually, we don't want to be like Martha. We don't want to be like Martha, where we're just busy, 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 and not actually responded to God in the way that he's called us to do. But thank God there is an alternative. That, just because that might be where we are right now, that does not mean where we have to be or where we're going to be. So, that's kind of Martha. We'll look at that. Let's flip the story and look at Mary. So let's consider what reckless serving is, but culture will not accept that it is. Oh, culture says that it isn't. So, 
Again, Mary and Martha, but we're going to look at um, John chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. And what you'll see is a very similar story. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served again. So assuming this is later on, she hasn't learned a lesson from the first time. She's still thinking, okay, this, Jesus is here, I'm going to do all this. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, um, then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So, putting Mary in the context of reckless serving it might sound like a bit of a, an odd thing. Because if you actually to look at these stories at face value, you think, the first, first story I read to you, she doesn't actually do anything. She's just sitting there. The second story, she again isn't helping her sister. Sister's doing it all. And what she does actually do is not really very helpful. And so you think, actually, where, we, where am I going to go with this in terms of Mary being our um, example of reckless serving? Well, what, let's consider what she did do. Actually, she had this expensive perfume. There's another story in the Gospels. May or may not be the same, same lady, we don't know. But it says, actually, this lady um, came to Jesus, uh, broke an alabaster jar, and it was a, year, a year's worth uh, of wages. It was the price of the perfume that was um, poured on Jesus. And so, okay, it might be the same story, so we can say, actually, Mary is pouring a, year, a year's worth of wages onto Jesus. But even if it wasn't, this was an expensive perfume. It was, wasn't something like, um, so I, I got aftershave for my birthday this week. That, that wasn't um, even a month's, thankfully, it wasn't even a month's worth of wages. That was just something, pocket money. Um, this, was, this was something that really cost, it was costly. It was a sacrifice. And in, in many ways, this, I, I we're not going to go into the rest of the story, but the disciples, they responded like, this is foolish. This is crazy. Why is she doing this? Why is she wasting this? But what we can say is it was reckless. And that's what we want to encourage. We want to encourage this reckless culture, this radical culture, which is a bit risky. It is a bit, actually, you might look foolish. But, so what is it about her actions that make her a reckless servant? I would argue it's not so much about what she does, but actually it's more about the attitude she does it with that makes her a reckless servant. So Mary's generally of the pattern that she knows if Jesus is in town, then we're going to find Mary sitting at his feet, listening. She has got the understanding that there's no better place for her to be than at her master's feet, to hear what he's got to say and spend time with him and get to know him. She's, under, she's got of the understanding that as, as we spend time with Jesus, our lives come back into line, re-centred, back on Jesus, with how God has called us to live and how he's called us to honour him. So if I was to pick one word that um, kind of epitomises reckless serving, because that's what we're talking about this morning, it's humility. And in both these stories, Mary is showing humility. She's recognising actually, you know what? Before him, I'm nothing. I'm going to sit at his feet and be a lowly position before him because actually he is worth so much more. 
So we considered actually how <coughs> Martha's kind of reaction is, uh, how it looks in culture. Actually, let's consider Mary's actions and how that's considered in culture. So what does humility look like in our culture? I would argue that in most cases of humility that we see, they're often confused with very different things. So I think uh, humility can be confused with someone who's just, just quiet and a bit reserved. Humility can be confused with someone who's got poor self-esteem or self-worth. It can be confused with someone who just, just doesn't acknowledge their own strengths. You know those people who are really good at saying, you're like, wow, have you just seen what you did? Like, no, no, no. And, and, so, and sometimes I remember this... But I remember being in, uh, in school and there's this girl in my art class who did this, um, constantly did amazing artwork and we're just like, how did you do that? And she's always just like, no, no. I'm just like, that's not humility. Because actually she's very good and to say, actually, thanks, that, that's really nice of you to say, would be, would be absolutely fine and that's not being proud. But I, it was frustrating because I'm like, why do you keep telling me it's not very good? I can see it's amazing, just accept it. Um, so I think, yeah, so not, not acknowledging your strengths I don't believe that's humility. Well, it can be, a, it can be humility, but I, don't, I think culture understands that to be what humility is. Um, again, not trying to draw attention to getting praise because of shyness or embarrassment. And I found this example of, um, in Greek myth- mythology, there's a, a goddess called Ados, and actually this goddess is a goddess of shyness, shame, and humility. And I thought, that says it all, really. Actually, humility has to be out of a place of shame and embarrassment. And, and so you come back into yourself. I think, actually, that's not what humility is. So, I guess I was wrestling this week with the question of, does humility exist without Jesus? And I think a few wise heads in the church shared a few of their thoughts. And actually, I, th- I think it probably does it probably does, because the Bible, the Bible says we're made in God's image, and so actually, whether we're in Christ or not, actually we express something of God. Um, but I would argue that real humility only comes through knowing Jesus. Actually, as we come into relationship with him, he's the one who's able to make humility really exist. Um, so Tim Keller, he says this, he says, Humility is only achieved as a byproduct of understanding, believing, and marvelling in the gospel of grace. So I'm going to read that again because I think it's quite prominent. Humility is only achieved of the, as a byproduct of understanding, believing, and marvelling in the gospel of grace. That is in Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. So why does hanging out with Jesus make us humble? Well, there's two, two reasons I'd argue. One is he leads by example. And... When he leads by example, he's saying, follow me into this. So we read in Philippians 2, 6, 8, it says, In your relationships with one another, so this is instruction to us all, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we're encouraged to be like him. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God. Something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus led by example. Again, in Matthew 20, it says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, 
did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If you think anyone, if anyone had any right to say, you need to serve me, it would be Jesus. But yet he's come not to be served, but to serve. So, he leads by by example, and we become like him. Secondly, I'd say, actually, when we come close to Jesus, we recognise our lowly position before him. We recognise, actually, we see who he is, and we see, actually, whoa, this is the one, the creator, who created all things from nothing. This is the one who, um, he became man. When he, when he was God, sitting on, in heaven, he said, I'm going to become man and come down and rescue, rescue these guys. Actually, when we become before God like that, who's humble, actually it makes us humble because that's our response. Because we, we realise we can't compete with that. So John, John the Baptist says, to, says about Jesus, he must become greater and I must become less. So humility is recognising that before God, the creator, we are nothing. We have nothing good that doesn't come from him first. Nothing to boast about, nothing in our strength that says, oh, I can boast about this really, because actually it all comes from him. So that means we can be loud or quiet and still remain humble. We can be firm but gentle and still remain humble. We can be confident but still understanding and still remain humble. Because all... The reason why I say those things is because quite often in culture, when I said quiet and reserved can be seen as humble, I'm saying that you don't have to be quiet and reserved. You can. You can be quiet and reserved if that's what you're like. Or you can be loud. But, and you can still be humble. You can be either. And you can be humble. Because all these things come out of our belief in the good news of the gospel rather than of our own strengths. So if you're loud, be loud. If you're quiet, be quiet. But I encourage you to be humble. So C.S. Lewis, he's famously said, uh, Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. How hard is that to do? That's a real challenge. He was a clever guy, that C.S. Lewis. Um, so Mary believed in Jesus. She, she believed he was the saviour of the world. She believed that he was his, um, her messiah. And because of that, she spent time with him. She thought, this guy is worth spending time with. And because she did that, that brought about a humility in her heart. Because she was humble, she was able to serve recklessly. And that's where we're going today, guys. Actually, we need to understand, actually, the, the journey Mary went on is a journey we've been, we go on, and we're going on, and we have to continually go on. So we need to constantly remember, actually, Jesus is our saviour. He is our Messiah. He's the one that we need to spend time with because he's so great. And that will make us humble. And that will help us to serve recklessly. So to be a servant is to be humble. Again, I'll read Matthew 20 again. It says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Oops. <laughs> okay. So, we've got to this conclusion that reckless serving is fueled by Jesus. He is the one who enables us to serve recklessly and to be humble. So Mary and Martha represent two different 
approaches to the Christian life. You've got, on the one hand, you've got Martha. She's tried so hard, and, but she's relied on her own strength. And you've got Mary on the other side, and she's just rested with Jesus and took time to enjoy him. So Tim Keller, we go back to him, he kind of says that these two camps have both got a bit of a catchphrase. You've got the Martha side, and their catchphrase is, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. And on the Mary side, their catchphrase is, I'm accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. Such a different concept of what makes us obey. Is it obey and that's what makes us loved by God, or is it we're loved by God and that makes us obey? So how then are our lives transformed to live lives, to be reckless servants? Well, so we've established, actually, to be reckless servants, everything's got to flow out of our relationship with Jesus. So Jesus said it quite straightforward. He said, um, basically, what are the greatest commandments? And uh, the first two were the ones that he came up with. He said, these are the ones you need to follow. So the first one, love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's what he said to do. He said, just love God. That's what he wants us to do. Just love him. Love him. Love him. That's, all, that's what he's calling you to do. Just love him. Don't worry about all the rest of the Ten Commandments. Because he says, actually, all of those are fulfilled in the first one. You love God, actually, all those other things will, will happen as well. Just love him. So, in this, actually, I think the encouragement is here is to spend time just with Jesus. Uh, I think one, uh, the word that we really want to encourage is just contemplating him. Contemplating before him. And this word contemplated, um, Francis de Sales said in, in what contemplate means is the mind's loving, unmixed, permanent attention to the things of God. So the mind's loving, unmixed, permanent un- attention to the things of God. And Brother Lawrence says the pure, contemplation is the pure loving gaze that finds God everywhere. So it's actually whatever we're doing, whatever we're, we're going about in life, we can, we can do it with God. Obviously, if you're sinning, that's different. But if you're, what I mean is if you're, if you're at work, you can do it. You say, God, I'm going to work for you. I'm gonna, my job is yours. I'm going to work as if I'm working for you. If you're playing sport, you can, you can be like, God, I love playing sport. I love, thank you for inventing this. And, and you can do it with a heart of saying, God, I love you. I'm, and so actually in every area of our life, we can say, we can do it with a, a pure loving gaze that finds God everywhere. And, and do it out of a love for him. So Jesus' Jesus's illustration that he uses is of the vine and its branches. He, he calls himself the vine and he calls us the branches. He says, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But then he says this. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So basically what Jesus is saying there is, we can do a lot of stuff, but we don't do it in him and in his strength. It's nothing. We can be great parents, but we can do it without his strength. We can be great at our jobs. We can be excellent students. We can um, plant churches and be great church leaders. We can cast out demons. We can pray for healing and see healing done. We can, we can, we can, do, we can do all that, but actually we can do it all, all without his strength. We can do it all in our own strength. And Jesus is saying, actually, anything you do without, my, uh, without remaining in me, it's nothing. So he says, come on guys, love God, love me first. So that's been, like I said, it's been a battle for me this week, thinking, 
okay, God, I'm, I'm writing this preach. How much am I relying on my own strength? How much am I relying on you to, to help me? And I'm because they say, God, I, I feel like a hypocrite. But, so it's a challenge, and we're there to encourage each, each other, encourage one another as a church, and say, come on, let's love God in all that we're doing. So Jesus is saying here that anything we do without him will not bear fruit. You'll produce nothing in, of his life and kingdom in the long term. So let's, let's remain in him and let's love him. But what's great is out of this love of God, he says the second commandment, which is love your neighbour as yourself. So our relationship with God and our relationship with others are basically two sides of the same coin. If we love God, we'll end up loving others. And when we love others, that encourages us to love God. So if our contemplation of God, so what we're talking about earlier, the contemplation, does not result in love for other people, so if we're, if we're telling ourselves, oh yeah, we're having a great time with God, but actually we're doing nothing to actually love others, then actually in 1 John it says so simply, it's basically a lie, it's not true. So we need, we need to make sure we're loving God and the outflow of that is we love others because that is remaining in him and that when, you're, when you've got a vine and you've got the branches, what goes into the vine goes into the branches. If we detach ourselves from the branches, then that's not going into the branches and they'll bear, bear no fruit. So the greatest gift you can give to those in your life, whether that be your family, whether that be in your community, whether that be the greatest gift to those that you love is to cultivate a depth in your relationship with Jesus. It's to run after him and love him. The more you love God, the more you'll love them. If you want to be a great mum and dad, if you want to be a great brother and sister, if you want to be a great child, if you want to be a great uh, work colleague, if you want to be a great neighbour, if you want to be a great friend, actually love God. Because the more you love God, the more you'll love them and the more your friends and your family and your employees will reap the benefits of, of your love for them and remaining in him. It is not selfish to take care of yourself. If you're busy, 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 and you're not remaining in Jesus, you need to reconsider and think, actually, I need to make sure I'm remaining in him. Look after yourself, because it's not selfish. In fact, it's very much the opposite. If you're doing it out of the heart of, I want to love God and I want to love others, take care of yourself. So, Jesus' example sounds good in theory, but it can be quite hard to outwork that in our lives, especially when we're in a culture which encourages, encourages the business, encourages us to be martyrs and to, to do that. We've, we can find endless distractions. Um, I think, you know, when you kind of feel like, actually, when you look at your own life right now and you think, oh, it didn't used to be like this 30 years ago. You didn't it used to be like this 100 years ago or 500 years ago. So sometimes I think with the technological age, um, where just everything's at our fingertips. Actually, we can find out what's going on around the world in a little village in, you name it, uh, just at the click of our finger. Actually, information is just endless. Mobile phones just make us accessible 24-7. Our, we can, it can be ringing at any time. We've got hundreds of TV channels. I remember growing up when there's four. Um, some of you will remember growing up when there's none. <laughs> but... I remember, I remember when TV didn't even used to be 24-7. It used to be like, you come down in the morning, on Saturday morning, you wait for the kids, and you've got the chalkboard, the lady with the chalkboard, like, and you have to wait for your shows to start. And you just think, actually, now you've got 24-7 channels um, all the time. Like, 
and there's just hundreds to pick from. Social media has given us non-stop updates on, on what's going on with all our friends' lives, and we feel like we need to know this because actually it's so important, and really, it's just not. Sorry, guys. <laughs> or we could just be like Martha in the sense of around the home, there's always jobs to do in the home, especially once you've got kids, I'm sure, or you've got people coming in and out of the house. There's always things you could do in the house. There's always cleaning to be done. There's always cooking to be done. Uh, you name it. You could be endlessly, to, um, endless list of tasks that need to be done around the house. And then in our work pressures, actually we might find actually in the culture that we're in, the pressure on our, uh, from our employees to, to do more for less, which seems to be um, a real pressure, especially, especially in some sectors of what we do. It, it's, it can make just such demands on your life and to kind of find that balance is, is difficult, it's really difficult. And there's no one, I'm not going to sit here and say, here's a rule for us all, this is what we're going to follow and this will help us out. Actually, there's no rule. But there's some helpful kind of like tips and, and things that just for us to do to think actually how can we try and form a healthy attitude to spending time with Jesus and out of that being able to have a humble response to be able to serve and love others. So firstly, actually, we want to look at Jesus' example. So his example, he started with, with time. He regularly found time. This was a guy who was going around healing people and seemed like everyone in touch was healed. And yet, he was able to pull himself away from everyone and just go up the mountain. And quite often, you read in the Gospels and you think, the disciples are looking for him, thinking, where's he gone? He's, he's gone again. Um, and you think, actually, this is the saviour of the world who's able to do that. The one who's, he's got, he, there's been no one else like him, there never will be, apart from when he returns. Um, and you think, if he can find time in, in the pressures that he had on him to constantly be pouring himself out for others, to, to spend time with the Father, to, to get away and to have that isolation, that silence, the solitude, and to spend time with his Father and just, and just get, getting energy from him, being re-energised by his Father, then surely we can. Surely we can fight for some time. And that will look very differently in all our lives. So I'm not saying you have to spend this amount of time or this regularly. Actually, you need to find out what works for you. Just, just get time with the Father. Because Jesus did it, so can we. Um, Jesus, I think, another thing is he knew Scripture well. Actually, he valued that because he knew that's how his Father would speak to him through Scripture. And so he, he spent time reading it from a young age. He was, he was getting stuck into it. Yes, it was part of his culture, but I think actually um, we need to work out what, how that works for us. So get into the word. Let, just let it soak in it. And, and all these things I'm saying, let's not think of them as tasks. Let's think of them actually of a response in love. Actually, our response to loving God is to spend time with him, to, to read with him and, and let him speak to us. Another thing Jesus did was he rested. He did things that re-energised his, his life. So things like, apart from spending time with the, his father, he would, he would uh, be hanging out with his mates. He'd be hanging out with the disciples. They'd be eating together. They'd be doing things that they enjoyed. And, and so Jesus wasn't constantly on the, onto the next person who had need. It wasn't bam, 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 one thing to the next. Even though there's that pressure to, because there was always going to be sick and the poor, but actually it, he was able to pull himself away and just kind of... Um, be an example in terms of actually we're, we're there to look after ourselves as well. So he set that example. So let's do the things we enjoy. 
Just do the things that find re-energize us. Because one, there's one thing having time to do things, but there's another thing having energy to do things. So, getting energy from him, being re-energized by his father, then surely we can. Surely we can fight for some time. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.